Amen. Thank you, Pedro and team. Um, you can grab a seat, and, and I, as you grab a seat, our children can be dismissed to Redemption Kids. If, if you're new here today and you have a child and you haven't checked them in at Redemption Kids, just follow our volunteers up the very top here, and they will get you squared away. For the rest of you, my name is John Chasteen, and I serve as one of the pastors here, um, so it's an honor to bring God's Word uh, to you today. If you're new here with us, uh, let me encourage you to download our church app. Um, you can find that on the App Store. And when you do that, just there's a section in there where you can, you can let us know. You can connect with us and let us know that you're here with us. We'd love to follow up. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Well, we're continuing in our series through 1 Corinthians. And so today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11. So if you have your Bible or you're using your phone or device, go ahead and grab that and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's in the New Testament, one of the letters of Paul. And as you turn there, um, I, I don't know about you guys, but one of the things I really enjoy is a personalized handwritten note on pen and paper. You guys know what that is? Like, pen and paper, not a text, not an email. Does anybody else like just love a person? And especially when it says something encouraging or nice, right? Um, and so my wife, awesome, uh, worked behind the scenes. You guys, about a year and a half ago, turned 40. And so like in preparation for my 40th birthday, she worked behind the scenes to put this together here, and, and I wish I could just read all of these great notes that make me look amazing um, to you guys, but it is full of notes and letters and pictures from some of you, from my family. There, there are notes in here from people I went to high school with to went to college with. I mean, it was really, actually, there's a, a note in here from a lady that I'm not even sure I could, like, recognize her. And, and uh, it's from a name, Laura, at one of the churches that I worked at, that she's writing to tell me about how God used me in her life. And these mean so much to me. They come from people that I respect, that I know well, that, that I love, that love me. Um, but as I was flipping through this, you know what also comes to mind as I see some of these faces? These are also notes from some of the people who have also challenged me, rebuked me, exhorted me, and corrected me. Now, what am I getting at here? It's the people that care about us and love us the most who have a place to speak the truth into our lives and grab our attention like no one else. Like anybody can write me a note, I'm gonna listen, but, but if, if I know you and you know me well, my ears are gonna perk up if you're writing an exhortation to me. And so last week in 1 Corinthians, when we look at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, how does Paul start out that message there? In 1 Corinthians 11 too, he says this, now I commend you, and I can hear the Corinthians now, let's go Paul, keep it going, we wanna hear that. All these ways that you commend us, but the tone is a different tone when we come to our text today. 
when we come to our text today in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, verse 17 starts with these words, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Who wants to keep reading this one? Like that's one of those notes you're like, do I want to finish this one now or sit that one aside? But that's where we find ourselves today in 1 Corinthians. And so just as the Corinthians needed to hear these words of correction related to when they gathered and came together, I believe these words are just as relevant for Redemption Hill Church. And just as Paul had their ear, I want you to hear these words today as if Paul were writing them to the Corinthians as a shepherd who cared deeply for his flock. Let's listen to the word of God and what he says here. In 1 Corinthians 11, beginning again in verse 17, the word of God says this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I'm going to hit pause there. Because these first few verses here set the context for in a second where Paul's going to unpack one of the earliest, clearest teachings on the Lord's Supper that we have in the Bible. But notice some observations here to set the context to make sure we understand that correctly. We see this repeated phrase a few times. When you gather or when you come together. We see that in verse 17. When you come together. In verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together. We see it again in verse 20. When you come together. Paul's concern here was with the corporate gathering of the church when they came together. Second, he notes this in verse 18. I hear there are divisions among you. This probably doesn't surprise us. If you've been with us through this whole study of 1 Corinthians, he starts in chapter one on one of the main reasons why he's writing the letter and what, what does he acknowledge? I hear there are divisions among you. Some of you say, I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. They had their special leader and teacher that they were following. But that's not the type of division that we see here in 1 Corinthians 11. The division here is a social and economic division. Look back at verse 21. In verse 21, he says this, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry Another gets drunk. You have the hungry poor 
and the drunken rich. There couldn't have been a greater contrast. The haves and the have-nots right there in the church. How is this even possible? Let me just pause here and unpack a little bit about a practice in the culture of that day that may help us just understand a little bit about what's going on. So at Corinth, most likely when they came together, they would have met in the homes of families that were well off. And in these homes, there was like a dining room area that could hold maybe up to 10 people. And then there was the atrium that if you really squeezed in, you might could get 50. So in these homes, in that dining room area where 10 people could fit, that's where they served the finest food and wine. And in this atrium where the 50 could squeeze in would have been the leftovers. Now, this was a practice in their society which seems to have been impacted and infiltrated into the church. So that what was happening is you've got a meal where some of the the high status and honored people would, would have, would have been, been invited to that dining room of 10, but the poor, if you were running late, if, if you were not of the favor or status, you might have even been lucky to be there and you could have hung out in the atrium. Now additionally here, if you were of the poor, it may have been that because of your work, you probably couldn't even get there when everybody else got there and you were arriving late. So you were almost guaranteed to be in the atrium and probably no food left for you. This practice had infiltrated the church and you can see the divisions that it would have caused. The rich didn't wait for the poor. For those of you that have your own meal, you're going ahead and you're not waiting for the person who had to work all day and it gets there and it says, you've got one that's drunk and another one that has nothing to eat. The rich eat almost oblivious to the poor in their midst. It's as if the rich were eating as if they were the center of the universe and did not have to care for the needy and the poor Around them. And what does it say here? It says here, as a result of this in verse 22, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Wow. The church of God was being despised and the poor were being humiliated. Shall I commend you for this? No way. You know what makes this even worse? This meal, did I say that right? Sometimes Pastor Reddy gets on me when I say the word deal. So it's like, meal, did I, did I get that? Am I good there? Thumbs up, I'm seeing sort of maybe. I see, okay, that's all right. Don't laugh at me if I say meal the wrong way. This meal, I said it the wrong way, didn't I? This meal, they were combining it with the Lord's Supper. And so, like, Paul's, like, going into some rhetorical questions here, like, 
What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Um, do you despise the, God, uh, the church of God and humiliate? What shall I say? Shall I commend you? In other words, he's like, is this the Lord's supper you're eating? Because it sounds like to me that this is the host supper. Who is hosting this meal? You're telling me Jesus is hosting this meal when the rich have, have everything to eat and the poor have nothing? Their practice undermined the very message of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to get to in a second, but I'll give you a foretaste. Jesus died when he says, this is my, the bread here, this is my body in this cup. This is my blood. It's talking about the death of Christ. He died for others. That's what the cross is about. And they're gathered to eat all about themselves. And you want to call that the Lord's Supper? I get a little passionate about this. They might have called it the Lord's Supper, but in practice, it was not the Lord's Supper. It was just a meal in a private house to benefit an inner group of people. That's why Paul says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? If you want to do this, go to your house. But when you come together as a church, we are not going to have divisions. There will not be racial divisions. There's not going to be socioeconomic divisions. This is not consistent with the message of the gospel. And I'll say it shouldn't be consistent in your house either. But So why won't Paul commend them? Their behavior contradicts the meaning of the Lord's Supper. So what he does now is he gives us one of the clearest teachings on the meaning, the purpose, and practice of the Lord's Supper. And and this is important because I I know as a pastor, oftentimes when we've done the Lord's Supper, I'll go and read like um, 23 and following. But like this is the context of what was happening. And it really like deepens and and opens our our eyes to understand really like Paul's going to the Lord's Supper to rebuke their coming together as a church. So, let's finish reading here in verses 23 through 24 and unpack what the Lord's Supper has to teach us about how we should be coming together. Verse 23, the Word of God says, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given things, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, 
wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give you directions when I come. Here's the point that I want you to see today. We celebrate the Lord's Supper rightly when Jesus is the center of that supper. We celebrate the Lord's Supper rightly when Jesus is the center of that supper. Here's what I want to do. I want to draw out five truths related to the Lord's Supper for how we should celebrate it in a way where Jesus is the center. And just to give you a heads up, I'm going to spend the most time on the first point, and it's going to drastically decrease in time as I get to point number five. You'll be... You'll think, be, just that, that comment will help you here in a little bit. Um, so here's the first one that I want us to see. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we proclaim Jesus' sacrificial death. We proclaim Jesus' sacrificial death. And this is the section 23 through 26 that I want to just dive in here. And we see how Paul starts out in verse 23. He says, for I receive from the Lord... Who is the Lord? Jesus. For I received from Jesus what I also delivered to you. He grounds his teaching about the Lord's Supper as actually having come from the Lord. There's no doubt that Paul had probably heard about the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper from the disciples. But ultimately, Jesus confirmed those truths directly with Paul. And so this makes Jesus the focus and the content of the Lord's Supper. It's rooted in what he said and what he did. Do you guys see that? Jesus is the center of it. And so this takes us all the way back to Jesus the night before he, he was killed on the cross. He's, he's enjoying a Passover meal the Last Supper with his disciples. And I just want to briefly mention that because we need to remember that the Lord's Supper is rooted in the history of this Passover meal that they were gathering to celebrate together. Now, you, for those of you that are new to Jesus and Christianity, I just want to give you a quick snapshot. And for those of you that like, man, I'm, I've been in this for a while, this will just be a fresh reminder. But when we think about the, the Passover, we go all the way back to Exodus. You've got Israel, who had been enslaved in Egypt. And God raises up a man named Moses. And he sends into Pharaoh, and he says, you're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to say, Pharaoh, let my people go. I'm not going to sing the cool song that goes along with that. And so he goes. And what happens? Ten times, God sends plagues. It's like he's going, and then God's sending plagues. The last plague is the plague of the death of the firstborn son. And that is where we understand the context of the Passover because what God told Moses to tell the Jewish people, the Israelites, is that they were to sacrifice a spotless lamb and they were to mark their doorpost with the blood of that lamb. And so when God came that evening, he would see the the blood over your doorpost, and he would pass over your house so that your firstborn child would not die. Additionally, 
God commanded his people, you can read about this in Exodus 12, to commemorate this by celebrating the Passover every year. And in this Passover meal, in addition to the lamb, there would have been bitter herbs that they would eat. There would be unleavened bread that they would eat together. And this was to be a reminder, you were slaves in Egypt, but God, who was rich in mercy and love and is a great redeemer, has saved you and redeemed you. Because what happened after that Passover? They go, God parts the Red Sea. It's the pathway and journey to God's promised land for his people. So think about it. Every year when you celebrate the Passover, your identity was to be shaped by what God did. So you look back, and it was also to point you forward. One day God is going to redeem you. The cool part about this is that Passover was meant to, sh- to foreshadow realities Far beyond the Exodus. In fact, that Passover was to bring us to Jesus. Earlier, we've already seen this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is what Paul writes. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is the Passover lamb. We don't sell a... We can follow the Passover now, but when we do that, we don't do that absent from who Jesus is because he's the fulfillment. He is the lamb. He is the spotless lamb. His blood was shed, and when it covers our sin, God passes over. He does more than pass over us. He gives us his his, his very self. So when we keep reading here, that's the context for understanding these words from Jesus, as he's celebrating this meal, he continues. It says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. The two words I want us to press in here are the words for you. There was a divine purpose in the awful suffering and death of Jesus. It's in these two words. It was for you. Why is Jesus' body for me? In the same way that Israel needed salvation and redemption, so do you and I. If you and I are okay, why does Jesus have to die? Jesus died because a lamb had to be sacrificed, not just for God to pass over us, but to redeem, to renew, to restore, and to save us. And so all of us stand on the brink of death, just like Israel, and needing a spotless lamb. Jesus, his body is for you. It was sacrificed for you. But we keep reading, and we also hear these words. It says, in the same way, he took the cup after supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This language here, new covenant, for any 
any Israelite or Jewish person, they would hear and, and understand the background of all of this covenant language. You've got the Abrahamic covenant. You've got the Mosaic covenant. You've got the Davidic covenant. But what's the problem? The problem is, is Israel failed and broke the covenant. And so the prophets started talking and longing for a new covenant to come. We hear about this in Jeremiah 31, and I know we've reflected on this some. I don't think it's too much to go back and continue to reflect on these prophets together. Jeremiah 31, the word of God says this. I think we've got it on the screen here. Yeah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on their day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, And know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Here's what Jesus is saying. The shedding of his blood is the establishment of the new covenant. What Jeremiah wrote about, Jesus is saying, this is it. I am the one who's come to bring this new covenant. And you may ask, hey, what's so great about this new covenant? I mean, what did we just read about? This is what's so great about it. God is going to put his law within us. He's going to write it. He's going to change our hearts. We will be his. His people, he will be our God. He will be for us. We are going to know him. But here, the last phrase here, and I will forgive their iniquity and forgive their sin no more. In summary, through Jesus, your sins, all of them, like I just celebrated 40 about a year and a half ago, like the sins I commit when I'm 60, Jesus' blood was shed for those, all of them. And, and when we think about our sin, we often think of maybe the actions, but think of the attitudes. Like, like there's just a ton of, of wickedness in John Chastain. And Jesus paid for it all. And not only that, he died, he rose, and now he puts his very spirit in us. He's given us a new heart. He's put his spirit within us, and we have intimate knowledge of God. Jesus did that for you. He is for us. Now, let me just pause here for a second. I know when we talk about the Lord's Supper, we here in Boston are in a highly Catholic context. And so the catechism of the Catholic Church actually teaches that when the ordained priest blesses the bread and the wine, that it actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus. I believe that is contrary to the teachings that we find here in the scriptures. I think the most natural reading 
when Jesus says, this is my body, is that he's saying, this represents my body. Not that my body is fresh, being broken, and that we're eating the physical body of Jesus, or that he's being represented or re-sacrificed every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. For example, if I were to pull my, my book back up here and one of these pictures of my family and say, hey, look, this is my family. How are you going to read that? You're, you're not going to read that as if for some way, like, this picture mystically becomes my family. No, they're sitting right there. You're, you're going to say, this represents my family. And so in the same way, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that, that we're not eating the actual body and blood of Jesus. We are remembering. Do this in remembrance of me. He was sacrificed once and for all. It's, we're looking back at that historical event and its implications on our life today. If you want to read more about this, I know one of the, the um, one of the passages I point you to is, is John chapter 6. Um, and I would say when John chapter 6 is talking about Jesus saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's saying, I'm talking about spiritual realities, not like physically eating my flesh or blood. It's feast on me by faith. I am the bread of life. Believe. All right. I'm still on point number one. Truth number one. Kind of tying all this back together here. In verse 26, Paul concludes this section and says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're preaching. You didn't know you were going to be preaching today. You are going to be, we're proclaiming. We, we are, and we're not proclaiming it to God. We are preaching the gospel to each other, believers and unbelievers, that his death was for us and for me. What do we preach? Jesus' death saves sinners, of whom I am the utmost. So we proclaim Jesus' sacrificial death. Second, we remember and feast on Jesus by faith. We remember and feast on Jesus by faith. I want to go back and revisit a few phrases that I skipped over. In verse 24, when he says, this is my body which is for you, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And then going down, same thing with the cup. Um, he says, the cup of the new covenant of my blood, do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. What, what is Jesus hoping the act of remembrance does for us? Here's what he's hoping. A remembering that results in worship, a remembering that results in trust, a remembering that results in obedience. It's a remembering that transforms not just our attitudes, but our actions, and it reshapes our whole identity. He wants the gathering there, their identity to be shaped by the death of Jesus. Such that like Paul in Galatians 2.20 can say, I have been crucified with Christ. His death has become my death. John Chastain has died and the life I now live, I live by faith in Jesus. 
And when my identity, when my attitudes and my actions are shaped by the cross, think about this, the cross was for you. So when you've got the dining room and you've got the atrium, you take the cross and you say, how does it relate to that? Because there's no way you can have the rich and drunk and the hungry poor there and saying, this is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an invitation to feast on Jesus and have our soul strengthened by the good news of the gospel. When we partake here in a little bit, it's come and feast. Those of you that are weak, that are tired, that are struggling, come and feast. This body was broken for you. Feed your souls on all that Jesus is for you. And so that's why in like a John 6, 35, which I've mentioned already, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never, never thirst. So when you remember, it's, a fi- it's not a, I'm not daydreaming. I'm consciously bringing to memory Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. So let me give you some things maybe that you can fight to remember that will come and shape your attitudes and your actions. Remember, as even Paul notes here, as he was eating the supper, he's being betrayed. He was betrayed by one of his very own. Remember his obedience to God when he's in the garden and he's praying, Father, if there's another way, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. Remember his perseverance under temptation and under trial. Remember the injustice that took place leading up to his death. Remember him being mocked and spat upon. Remember him being beaten to the point of death. Remember the crown of thorns that they've smushed on his head that have now pierced his head and his scalp. Remember him carrying his own cross on a back that had already been bloodied and beaten. Remember the nails that have been driven through his hands and his feet. Remember him saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Remember, as he looks to the thief beside him and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Remember when he says, It is finished into your hands, I commit my spirit. Remember when he shed his blood that he drank every last drop of the cup of God's wrath. It is completely exhausted for those who believe there's nothing, there's no wrath left from God for you. Jesus took it all. Remember and be grateful. Enjoy Delight, be satisfied in him. My body is for you. We proclaim his death. We remember and feast on Jesus by faith. Third, we examine our following of Jesus. 
when we come to this section here in verse 23, sorry, in verse 27, Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Jesus is, and Paul here is warning against an approach to the Lord's Supper. Like, we're, we're to bring a certain level of seriousness, not careless, not callous. There's actually a way to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a way that is unworthy. Which should remind us, this is not just some spiritual ritual. Like if the Lord's Supper is just turned into, man, I'm going to eat the wafer and drink. Like, man, there's nothing magical here. Trust me, there's nothing magical in these wafers and like the juice that we drink here. It's not a ritual. It's to be entered into seriously. Now, let me just give a few observations. In the very real sense, none of us are worthy of this meal. So like the way we approach it is, God, I'm not worthy. Because it's my very sin that led Jesus to die. So it's not like Paul saying some of you are worthy and some of you are unworthy. Like, no, like, but it's, it's our approach, the, the way we're approaching it with an examination, without a, we're not entering to this blindly. We're aware. And, and, and think about this, like, if our sin is what sent Jesus to the cross, how can we come and drink a cup that's for the forgiveness of my sin and not be concerned about the ongoing sin in my life? We approach it in a worthy way when we do self-examination. So let me give you a few questions to consider. Do you see what the bread and cup signify? If you're not acknowledging what this signifies, you're not approaching it in a worthy manner. Second, do you feel remorse for your sins, your attitudes and your actions? If there's not a remorse and how can we look at Jesus and, and a remembering that I just spoke about and not feel remorseful? So we ought to get, God, would you break, would you show me my sin? Would you break me of my sin? I know that if I've trusted in Jesus, I'm completely forgiven. But I know you're, you're wanting to change me from the inside out as you've given me this new heart and put your spirit. And God, help my desires to be your desires. Third, do you have a desire to repent and turn from your sin? So not just a remorse, but a desire to actually turn and repent. And then fourth, do you trust in Jesus for complete forgiveness for your sins? And Paul tells us why we should not approach the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. Look at the text here. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Like, this is shocking. Paul is telling the Corinthians, some of you are sick right now because you've approached the Lord's Supper in a way that's not worthy of God. And God, by his fatherly discipline, note here, not judgment or wrath, not condemnation and wrath, but as a fatherly, like he desires you to, to run towards, it's an act of grace here that God's gonna discipline you because he doesn't want you to stay running far from him. But he even says some of them have actually 
died. And later he's going to talk about the gift of healing as if, man, that was no good for them because they were approaching the Lord's Supper in such an unworthy way. Note, now I'll just make a note here. Not all illness is the result of God's discipline. He says some of you. There are a lot of reasons why we get sick. And let's just remember here, in Corinth, they had turned the mill into a social divide. They were actually blind to their own sin. They were not even aware, it seems. That's why Paul is having to rebuke and exhort and correct them. And so I would just encourage you, like, how do we overcome spiritual blindness? One, ask God to reveal your sin. And two, live in community. They would have heard this rebuke by gathering together and being underneath God's word. When you live in community, other people God uses in our life to help us see the sin in our life. Now, here's what I want to do real quick. There may be a, like, a number of questions that you have about the Lord's Supper, and I've got about five that I'm going to try to just real quick give you some thoughts from a pastor at Redemption Hill um, some of these may not just necessarily be a Redemption Hill stance, but a personal preference or thought to help you out here. You may ask, like, who should participate in the Lord's Supper? I think it should be clear as we've read through this that believers, those who actually believe in what the bread and the cup signify are the ones that should participate in the Lord's Supper. It's a family meal. So, hey, if you're here today and you're like, man, I'm not sure, like, I really believe this yet, I want to say I'm glad you're here. Thank you for being here today. This isn't like, hey, we want to kick you out and have some secretive meal. Like, it's proclaiming. What we would say to you is, we want you to believe this. Like, it's not that, like, I would say until you believe, you should not partake. But we're eating, praying, God, for the person who here doesn't know you, we want them to eat this with us next time. We want you to eat. But eat when you believe. And until then, it is completely okay to be at Redemption Hill and wrestle with who Jesus is. Though I would challenge you as we partake here in a little bit, receive and feast on Jesus. Look to him and receive him. What about children? Should children participate in the Lord's Supper? I'm gonna give a general answer and then a personal answer. Generally speaking, I would say communion is open to everyone, including children, who believe in Jesus and are committed to following him with their life. There is no verse that tells us, like, you've got to go to this class or whatnot to be a part of communion. So children can participate if they understand the gospel, have given a credible profession of faith, and genuinely intend to follow Jesus with their life. So within that framework, parents, we give freedom to leave it up to you to decide when your children are ready. All right, that's my general encouragements. As a very personal, what the Chastines have done in our own household. I have told my children that they can partake after they have gone through with public baptism. 
The reason I've argued for that is that baptism to me walks through our baptism process where we continue to teach them the gospel and ensure they understand what the gospel is and what baptism is and that this is something they're doing on their own and is a credible, it's them going public with their profession and faith. And so I'm not saying that's the rule at Redemption Hill. I'm saying the Chastain household, that's what we have decided with our children. And so when they take that step forward, we would love for them to participate and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. Can I celebrate the Lord's Supper on my own? Again, I want to be less dogmatic about where Scripture is not as clear or silent. What I do see from this text is Paul's emphasis when you gather together. My point that I'm about to make in a second, my fourth one would argue for this, but I see this not as an individual meal, but as a family meal. So at Redemption Hill, we partake of the Lord's Supper here on Sundays together um, because I believe it's not just you individually, it's you looking around and seeing who are the other people that you are committed to of the body of Christ, that it is a family meal together. That doesn't exclude if somebody could not join us and they're in a hospital or something that we would not, as an exceptional, like go and, and do that with them. But as a general practice, we believe this is something that we would do gather together as the church. And then finally, like how frequent should we celebrate? For those of you at Redemption, you've probably noticed we celebrate roughly once a month. Sometimes it's a little more frequent than that. Um, other churches have said, hey, we're going to do it quarterly. Some churches do it weekly. There's no command in Scripture on how frequent that you have to participate and partake of the Lord's Supper. I would say, though, that as, a, as you cultivate rhythms of grace in your life, that if you're involved in a local church, there ought to be regular rhythm of partaking in the Lord's Supper. So if you're missing such that you can't remember the last time that you partook of the Lord's Supper, that's probably not good, okay? So I'd encourage you, like, this is vital. This is something that we believe ought to be a vital part of our worship. All right, fourth truth. We renew our commitment to love as Jesus loved. And I'm flying here. Again, it's just a reminder. What was the initial issue? They were not loving each other well. So Paul introduces this teaching not as a, hey, let me give you a theology of the Lord's Supper, but as a, a way to correct their selfish behavior among themselves. So when you partake, it's a family meal. I love looking around and saying, who else am I eating with? And that's part of why I meant, like, before COVID, some of you guys don't know this, but we used to have a whole, like, a couple of different loaves of bread down here. You would come down, and you would pick out a piece of the bread. I love the picture because it's, we're, we're like, there's this one loaf that we break, and we're a part of it. It's not my own individual thing. And so I know because of COVID, we've kind of got your own individual um, supply here. But, but it's a family gathering. So as you participate here, I would challenge you that, man, Look around and ask, God, are there people that I'm not loving in a way that reflects the gospel like the Corinthians? And should I go repent of that before I come and partake? Fifth, we long for Jesus' return. I take us back to verse 26, and I'll end here. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I know our focus today has been on the death of Christ. But the resurrection of Jesus is all over this section. I mean, who do we call the Lord? 
You don't call somebody still in the grave the Lord. He is the risen Lord. And this, this comment here, you proclaim his death until he returns. He is alive. He rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God. And Jesus said, I will not drink of the cup until I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. There is going to be a feast one day when he returns that we're going to eat with him. We long for that day. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's not just a looking back at the death of Christ. It's also a looking forward and a longing. Jesus, come. We long for your return. We long to live and be with you forever. We long for the consummation of the kingdom. The Lord's Supper is a time to look back, to look around, and to look forward. And so here what we're about to do is spend some time partaking of the Lord's Supper. And before I lead us in prayer, what I want to do is the invitation is a call to examine. I want you to just bow your head. I want you to reflect. I want you to fight to remember. And if you're here today and you're like, John, I, I want to believe in Jesus for the first time, do that. Call upon him as simple as, God, I am a sinner. I'm seeing that the body of Christ was broken for me, and I believe he died for me. Forgive me of my sin, all of it. Give me a new heart, put your spirit in me, help me to follow you. Feast on Jesus today. Let's fight to remember, to reflect, and feast. And I'll pray us out here in a second.